Um, could you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 17? While you're doing that, let me just say hi to the new folks and just tell you that we are working our way through the Gospel of John here at Calvary on Sunday morning. And we have come to chapter 17, which uh, many commentators believe is uh, the Holy of Holies of all the Gospels. Why do they say that? Because we get a peek behind the veil. I'm calling this series With Jesus Behind the Veil. Because it's like we're getting a peek behind the veil into the Holy of Holies as the Father and Son commune with each other. Guys, this is the real Lord's Prayer. Not the one we call the Lord's Prayer. That's the disciples' prayer. Uh, this is the real Lord's Prayer. Now, it's divided into the three main parts. Jesus prays for himself, verses 1 to 5. Jesus prays for his disciples, those that had followed him those three and a half years, verses 6 to 19. And then Jesus prays for all believers, which would include all Christians, and, and of course, those of us in this room, from verses 20 to 26. Now, this morning, we'll finish that first section where Jesus prays for himself. Let's uh, look at verses 4 and 5, where Jesus said, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. What did Jesus mean by this statement in verse 4? In what way did he glorify his Father on earth? And just what was the work the Father had given him to do? Well, as we began to look at this last time, we just wanted to simplify this. The work that Jesus came to fulfill on the earth was basically twofold. twofold. First of all, and this is one that most people don't think of, uh, to show the world what God was really like, and then secondly, to die on Calvary's cross to redeem us back to God by paying our debt. Now, the first is embodied in the statement, I have glorified you on the earth, and the second in the statement, I have finished the work which you have given me to do. So let's just review quickly that first point. To show this world, why did Jesus come? Well, first of all, to show this world what God was like. Verse 4, I have glorified you on the earth. Once again, guys, God's glory involves or encompasses his, his, his intrinsic, eternal attributes. These are qualities that are only found in God's divine nature, God's love, God's grace, God's mercy, His, uh, his justice, uh, His peace. Now, the world has cheap knockoffs of all these things. Uh, the world will manufacture love and peace and joy. As we have said before, these are cheap counterfeits. Uh, they're like uh, glass in a ring as, as opposed to a true diamond, okay? These things that come from God, these are the real deal. These are the real thing. These are uh, only found in his divine nature. And so through Jesus' life and death and resurrection, these and other attributes of God were put on display for the world to see. And this allowed, allowed God to be glorified by showing the world, uh, primarily the Jewish people, because they were the covenant people of God in the Old Testament. But this allowed God to be glorified by showing the world what he was really like. You see, the Jewish people had gotten a warped understanding of God, a warped understanding and impression of God over the years, primarily because they tried to relate to God through the law. And because they kept breaking it, they kept reaping or uh, are bringing upon themselves the judgment of God uh, for their sin. Uh, and so consequently, they believed, and not all Jews, but many of them, 
believed that God was nothing but a vengeful, wrathful, fire-breathing God that they had to constantly appease through sacrifices, but a God they were pretty much terrified of. Uh, very hard to get close to a God you are uh, terrified of that you think is going to destroy you for any small reason. And this is where the Jewish people were coming from. So Jesus came in part to set the record straight. To set the record straight. To show uh, the Jewish people first, but all of us, what God is really like. Look at uh, John chapter 1. We studied this last time. We're reviewing. But as John launches into his gospel, he presents Jesus Christ. Because it's all about Jesus Christ and the receiving eternal life through his name. And uh, so he, John says in John 1, verse 18, No one has seen God at any time, God in all of his fullness and glory. The only begotten Son who was in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. In other words, he has made him known, he has revealed him clearly. You remember that a few hours before this point in John's gospel, this is all the same night uh, when uh, they started in the upper room and now they're making their way to the Mount of Olives, where Jesus is going to spend the rest of the night in prayer before being arrested and put on trial and, and then crucified. But earlier in the evening, Philip said something to Jesus. He said, Lord, show us the Father and we'll be satisfied. And Jesus said, Philip, have I not been with you so long that you would ask me to show you the Father? If you have seen me, you've seen the Father, for I and the Father are one. So the work Jesus came to the earth to fulfill was, first of all, to show this world what God was really like. He's a God of love. He's a God of mercy. He's a God of compassion and forgiveness. In fact, Paul the Apostle in Romans 18, uh, in talking about how that when Jesus came, died, rose from the dead, ascended back to his Father, and then sent the Holy Spirit, he said the Holy Spirit, who was God, God the third person of the Trinity, right? He said he has come into our hearts and he wants a relationship with us whereby we call God Abba, Father. Abba is an Aramaic word we could translate Papa. Now, my grandchildren call me Papa. And I melt every time they do. But it indicates the kind of relationship that I have with them and they have with me. Very tender, very loving. Uh, you know, and this is the kind of relationship our Father wants with us. He doesn't want us to have a concept of God that he's a fire-breathing, red-eyed God that wants to wipe us out for the smallest transgression. Uh, you know, like a father coming into a room that is abusive and the kids go run and cower in the corner. God doesn't want that kind of relationship with us. And any church that reinforces that concept of God is giving people false information. This is not the kind of information that the Bible holds out as who God really is. Jesus came to show us what God was really like. But number two, this is what we often think of when we talk, we think of why Jesus came to the earth. Of course, he came to die on Calvary's cross to redeem us back to God by paying our debt. Now, let me just say this to you. This is very common uh, ground we have studied, of course, redemption and all kinds of things related to why Jesus came and died and so on. Um, but you have to understand something. We're going to be reviewing well, what you already know, Peter said, sometimes it's important to put you in remembrance. Not that I'm teaching you anything new or that you don't know, right? Remember now, this night, Jesus has launched into some of the most important topics that he has taught his disciples over the last three and a half years of his ministry. Things that they had learned many times before, heard him teach many 
times before, but he wanted to revisit this, these topics because they were the most important that they would have to understand because very shortly he was going to the cross. Three days later, he would rise from the dead. Forty days after that, he would ascend back to his father, and his disciples would take over the work of the kingdom. They would carry on the work Jesus Christ had begun. So even though this is familiar ground to us, please be patient as we revisit these well-known areas of doctrine and teaching because they were important to Jesus. They ought to be important to us. So he came to die, for the most part, uh, he came to die in Calvary's cross to redeem us back to God by paying our debt. At the end of verse 4 we read, where Jesus said, I have finished the work which you have given me to do. Now, even though Jesus had not yet gone to the cross to die for our sins, he put it in the past tense as a way of declaring the absolute certainty of it happening. He was going to the cross. Nothing was going to stop that. In fact, in just about 15 hours from this point in John's Gospel, Jesus would say from the cross, just before he bowed his head and dismissed his spirit, he would say in John 19, verse 30, It is finished. As we have pointed out many times before, in the Greek, the word Jesus used for it is finished is to telestai. It's a word that could be translated paid in full. Paid in full. To fully understand the power of what Jesus was saying when he said from the cross, it is finished, I think we need to visit something Paul the Apostle said in Colossians chapter 2. If you would turn there. Colossians 2, let's pick it up in verse 13. I was talking to the Christians there in Colossae, and he said, uh, verse 13, And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. What is Paul referring to when he talks about the handwriting of requirements that was against us? Well, it's a term that means the bill or the record of sins, the debt we owed God. The NASB translates it, the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us and the NLT puts it this way the record that contained the charges against us the Bible says that every sin that a person commits against God's law of which the Ten Commandments are part of God's law every sin that a person commits against God's law is a debt that he or she owes to God a debt that has to be paid just like when a criminal finishes his time in prison, we say he has paid his debt to society. And the same goes for viola violations against God's law. And by the way, God keeps very meticulous records of every word, thought, and deed that we have ever done to break his law, his word. But every sin is a crime against the holy God and is written in our ledger. What is the ledger? Well, primarily, you've got some cops in the room. It's our rap sheet. It's our rap sheet. And I looked it up to make sure I had the right understanding of rap sheet. Yes, it's the rap sheet. It contains all the crimes we committed against God. Now, people will, you know, and, and all these crimes, all these sins, 
they have to be paid for. They have to be paid for. Sometimes people say, well, why did G-? I, one pastor was saying to me one time that somebody came to him one time and he was talking to this person. And the person was kind of like, you know, why did Jesus have to die for people's sins? You Christians talk about that all the time. Why couldn't God just say, uh, let's just forget it? Let's, 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 do a, let's have a do-over, you know? Uh, you know, that's how we think as fallen human beings. Sin's no big deal to most people as fallen human beings. But when you're talking about a holy, righteous God who is absolutely just, perfect, and so on, he cannot just say, well, let's forget about it. Sin has to be paid for. It has to be paid for. And guys, Jesus came to earth to pay our debt. You all know Isaiah 53. Hopefully you got these two verses memorized. Uh, verses 5 and 6, He was wounded for our transgression. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon Him, and by His stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way, and the Lord laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He paid our debt. In Colossians, back in Colossians chapter 2, verse 14, the NASB puts it this way for this verse, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When Paul says in Colossians 2.14 that Jesus took our sins out of the way, listen, having nailed it to his cross, he's referring to a practice that they were all very familiar with, but we, because we're not in that culture 2,000 years ago, right, uh, 6,000 miles from where we're living, um, we have to study the culture. We have to understand what the culture was all about and what they, things that they used to do or take for granted or just, you know, it helps us to understand what the Bible is teaching that way. Well, they were familiar with this idea of someone's sins or crimes being nailed to something wooden. What do I mean? Well, Paul's referring to a practice back then by which guilty criminals paid their debt to society. Back then, if a man was convicted of breaking the law, uh, he had his crimes written on a piece of parchment, which was then nailed to his dungeon door. When he had finished paying for his crimes, they would take the piece of parchment right across the bottom to Telestai, which meant paid in full, roll it up, give it to him, and he was to keep it on his person at all times. This way, if anyone accused him of not paying his debt to society, he could have pulled out his parchment and says, look, all the crimes, I don't, don't think I, uh, I, did I say they wrote all the crimes he had committed on the parchment, and then to tell us that at the bottom, and he would show them this piece of paper. That was his guarantee. He could never be tried again for the crimes that he had already paid in full for, right? Well, Paul is saying that Jesus took all the sins, all the crimes of everyone who has ever lived, um, every sin they would ever commit, had ever committed, or would ever commit uh, against God's holy laws, everything that would ever be written in any of our ledgers, and he nailed it to his cross. In other words, he paid the penalty. And then just before he died, he said from the cross, it is finished, the telestai paid in full. This was the work that Jesus came to accomplish, John 17, verse 4. I have finished the work you have given me to do. This is the work, guys. What is it? It's the work of redemption. The work of redemption. You know, I think most people today, 
have no idea what redemption is, especially when it talks. it is talked about in the pages of the New Testament. However, the first century Greco-Roman world knew exactly what redemption was all about. It was about slavery. Slavery. You see, in the first century Greco-Roman world, slavery was very much a part of their daily lives. In fact, it's been estimated that more than half the people that you'd see walking the streets of the great cities in the Roman uh, Empire uh, back then were slaves, upwards of half the population. These were people without rights. It was very difficult to be a slave. They were people without rights, mere property, existing only for the comfort, convenience, and pleasure of their owners. As you can imagine, the life of a slave is often hard, hopeless, and uh, downright terrible. They were bought and sold like tools or animals and discarded just as easily by their owners. The Roman statesman Cato said, and I quote, Old slaves should be thrown on a dump. And when a slave is ill, do not feed him anything. It is not worth your money. Take sick slaves and throw them away because they are nothing but inefficient tools, end quote. And another author, Juvenal, wrote of a slave owner whose greatest pleasure was, quoting this slave owner, listening to the sweet song of his slaves being flogged, end quote. Slavery was a terrible thing. But the idea of being set free from slavery wasn't foreign to them either. I mean, there was some hope. Um, I mean, that was the whole idea behind redemption, a concept they were very familiar with. You see, the word redemption, guys, means to purchase by paying a price. And that was a concept, again, that everyone who lived in the first century Greco-Roman world understood very well. There were roughly 60 million um, slaves in the first century Roman Empire, and they were constantly being redeemed. For example, in the center of every major city stood the Agora, which is the word for marketplace. So every major city had the agora. And uh, the way the city was laid out, there was a, um, a central area, a round area, where you had city hall, you had various other uh, shops, but uh, legislators would be there and so on. You had the, the seat of government. But in the center of that area, the town square, we would say, uh, there was the agora. And uh, this is the, was the place where slaves primarily were bought and sold. In fact, the place became so synonymous with the buying of slaves that um, the Greek, one of the Greek words for the act of redemption, again, the purchasing of a slave, is agorazo, taken from the Greek word agora, because they were synonymous. The marketplace or the agora was the place so much so that where slaves were purchased, it became one of the words for redemption became agorazo, right? Now, there was a second word for redemption that the Greek reader of the New Testament would have readily understood, and that was the Greek word ex-agorazo, ex-agorazo, which is a word that means the act of purchasing or redeeming a slave who would never again return to the agora. You see, oftentimes a man would redeem or buy a slave to use him for the cultivating and planting of his fields or for the harvesting of his crops during harvest season. After the harvest, though, he didn't need this extra slave or slaves, and so he would take this slave back to the Ogura and resell him, recoup his money. He didn't need him anymore. 
The word exagorazo was the antithesis of this practice, though, in that it spoke of a man redeeming a slave who would become the permanent possession of that master for the rest of his life. Now, it's the third Greek word that I want you to key in on because this is the word that we see uh, in the New Testament. Uh, the third Greek word for redemption is uh, apotrelosis, okay? Uh, apotrelosis, which was a, um, a very well-known word. And this is um, a word that speaks of a man going into the agora to purchase a slave for the purpose of setting him free completely, never to be a slave again. Now, granted, this was rare, but it wasn't unheard of, especially if it was a relative who would become another man's slave due to the fact they couldn't pay off a debt. In those days, if you couldn't pay off a debt, uh, then you would become the slave of your, uh, of your um, the guy who, that you owed the money to as a creditor. Uh, you become a slave to your creditor, and, uh, and you'd have to then work off the debt. Now, if you were a wealthy uh, person and you found out one of your relatives uh, was sold into slavery to pay off a debt, you could redeem that relative out of slavery and set them free. Apotrelosis, that was the idea uh, in many respects of that, of that term. Um, however, when Jesus Christ, along with the writers of the New Testament, when they talked about redemption, they weren't talking about set, being set free from physical slavery, as was sanctioned by the Roman government. They had another slavery in mind. When they talked about being redeemed, it was in reference to being set free from the bondage of spiritual slavery to sin and Satan. That was the context in which Peter and Paul used it, and we could give dozens of examples of all the writers of the New Testament, how they used this word. I'll just give you a couple. Uh, one from Peter, one from Paul. First of all, 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19, where Peter says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct from before, you know, your past life, okay? Uh, aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. But you were redeemed with the precious blood of Jesus Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Hold on to that thought. Without blemish, without spot. We'll get back to it in a second. So our redemption wasn't, of course, if you were a literal physical slave, then you would be redeemed with gold, silver, or something else valuable. But our slavery to sin and Satan was spiritual. And the only, the only thing that could redeem us out of that slavery was the precious blood of jesus christ paul said in colossians chapter 1 verse 14 in whom in jesus christ we have redemption through his blood for the, the forgiveness of sins and we can paraphrase that very easily and say uh, through christ we have redemption through his blood the payment of our debt that's the, that's the idea the payment of our debt when paul talked about our redemption through christ in Colossians 1, verse 4, he used the Greek word apotrelosis, which speaks of Jesus' blood setting us totally and completely free, never to be a slave of Satan and sin ever again. Now listen, if a person refuses to receive what Jesus Christ did on Calvary's cross, and many do all the time, but if a person refuses to receive what Jesus Christ did on Calvary's cross, uh, his death which paid for all their sins, well... 
then they will have to stand before God someday in the day of judgment and be sentenced to pay for their own crimes in hell forever. Now, that's a great tragedy. That's a great tragedy. No person ever needs to go to hell because Jesus pray, paid all of our debt in full. Of course, guys, our redemption is based on the principle of the innocent dying for the guilty. This is an important point, okay? Under the old sacrificial system, God allowed animals to be substituted for guilty sinners. But the animal had to be without spot or blemish, right? You remember reading that? What does that mean? Well, it basically means that God wouldn't accept roadkill. I mean, you know, a guy's out there, uh, you know, walking around his land, and he sees that uh, one of his little lambs had fallen down a ravine, and another animal had got it and chewed it up. It was on its last leg. It was about ready to, to die. What are we going to do? It's going to die, you know, it's going to croak real quick. What do we do? I, quick, grab it, run it down to the temple. Offer it to God. We've got to give God something anyways. We can't use it anymore. It's no good to us. Let's, before it dies, let's go ahead and offer it to God. God says, no, uh, I don't want your, you know, your garbage. Your, the animals that you give to me have to be the best. God, God deserves the best, doesn't he, from our lives? They have to be without spot or blemish. What does that mean? They have to be free of any uh, birth defect, something they were born with, but also they have to be free from any acquired uh, scars. Again, they couldn't be born with a, per a defect, without spot, without blemish. They couldn't be chewed up by some animal or had fallen down a ravine, broken a leg. No, no, no. They had to be perfect. And the idea that God was communicating was that it had to be a perfect sacrifice. Okay? Now that was the old. The, the that was the old system, the old covenant, where God allowed the blood of animals to be they could be substituted for the, for the blood of a person who had you know violated God's law, broke His commandments. God said to the prophet um, Ezekiel. This was a, a firm rule, by the way. Okay, God said to the prophet Ezekiel, "The soul that sins, shall surely die." I mean, sin requires life, you know, it requires the blood of, you know, to be atoned for. The soul that sins shall surely die. But God also said, but I've given you the animal on the altar to make atonement for the soul, for it is the blood of the sacrificial animal that makes atonement for the soul. Well, the writer of the Hebrews said it, very clearly in chapter 9, verse 22. For without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin, right? That was the Old Testament economy, the Old Testament system. Of course, the problem, main problem with the Old Testament sacrificial system was that the blood of animal sacrifices would only, listen, temporarily cover a person's sins until the next time they sin, right? I mean, think about that system. How laborious and burdensome and hopeless it really was. So you brought your animal to the priest, and he offered it to you on to God. And you're leaving the temple now feeling like the guilt is gone. I feel lighter. I've, I've, my sin's been atoned for. Yet on the way home, some guy cuts you off, you know, with his high-powered chariot, cut, cuts in front of you, you know. 
and you're cursing up a storm. Oh, well, oh man, I gotta go get another animal, you know, <laughs> kind of thing, right? God understood that. God knew, and it was part of the reason he instituted this system. He wanted them to long for the day when they could have another way by which they could have their sins atoned for. Instead of this constant bringing of animals to God to be sacrificed for their sin. And um, under the new covenant, God instituted that very system. God ordained that one sacrifice would be efficient to atone for all of their sins, all of our sins, all of us. One sacrifice would atone for all of our sins forever. And that would be the sinless Lamb of God, of course. The sinless Lamb of God, whose sacrifice wouldn't just temporarily cover our sins, but would forever pay their penalty and take away those sins once and for all time. Remember in John chapter 1, when John the Baptist is baptizing down by the Jordan, and all of a sudden, here comes, and he's got a big line of people, very popular guy. People wanted to get right with God through, by being baptized by John. And all of a sudden, here comes Jesus Christ walking over to be baptized by John. And what did John the Baptist say? He looked at Jesus, pointed to him, and said in John uh, chapter 1, verse what? Uh, 30, verse 29, Behold, the Lamb of God, who does what? Takes away the sin of the world. I won't have you turn to these, but Hebrews is a great place to, if you want to really, really look at this in detail. But in the book of Hebrews, and I'm, I'm quoting from chapters 9 and then chapter 10, it talks about how that Jesus Christ, our great high priest, offered himself as a sacrifice for sin once for all time. Once for all time. And then when he ascended back to his father, he what? He sat down. The priest never sat down. Because there was always another sacrifice. Because there was always another person who had sinned. The idea that when Jesus offered himself and he returned to his father in heaven and he sat down indicated his work was done. It is finished. We don't need to keep having our sins washed away as Christians. Once we get saved, the blood of Christ cleanses us completely, and any sins we commit uh, after that point, we sure will. On a practical level, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, the Greek says, continually cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And that's why the writer to the Hebrews said, in verse 14, for by one offering... He has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. I love that verse, Hebrews 10, 14, because it puts the positional and practical aspects of our salvation back to back. This morning, guys, if you're a Christian, you are in Christ. Positionally, you are perfect, you are holy, you are blameless, you are righteous. Practically, guess what? We're none of that stuff. Because we all blow. We all sin, right? But positionally, we are in Christ. We are perfect. He has perfected forever those who are now being, being sanctified. 
because we're drawing close to Jesus on the earth. We're being conformed more and more into his image. That's sanctification. But we, in the eyes of God, are perfect because of what Jesus did once on Calvary's cross. But listen to me. Now, this is important. It would take... Uh, our redemption is based on the principle of the innocent dying for the guilty. The innocent dying for the guilty. Again, sinners can't die for sinners, right? But for a man to be born innocent, in other words without a fallen sin nature. They would have to be virgin born. They would have to be virgin born. Why? Because the Bible says in Adam all die. Not in Eve. In Adam all die. The sin nature is passed down from the father to the children. Not from the mother to the children. It's passed down from the father to his children. And the only way for someone to be born without sin without a fallen sin nature, would be for them to be virgin-born, in other words, born without the seed of an earthly father to produce conception. And you can look at Luke chapter 1 when the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary and talked about this virgin birth, right? I know not a man, she said, how can this be? The Holy Spirit will overshadow you. The power of the Most High will come upon you. And that which will be conceived in you will be of the Holy Spirit. You will, this child will not need. I, I, I'm a virgin, she said. I've never known a man. How could this be? Because this will be a supernatural work of God. He will place the seed of God into your womb, and you will conceive and bear a son. And Gabriel calls him the Holy One, God in human form, right? Guys, there was only one man born into this world from a virgin, and that was the God-man. Not just any man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. Quickly turn to Matthew chapter 1. You all know it. I'll just read it to you. Matthew chapter 1, verse 22. Again, we're talking about the virgin birth. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Only God could have redeemed us from the penalty of sin and death because only God could have been virgin born and lived a perfectly sinless life. And there are different verses we could look at, but... Jesus Christ was tempted in all points just like we are, yet without sin, and so on. Only God could have lived a perfect and sinless life and then been worthy to die for fallen sinners. The, again, the innocent dying for the guilty. And this is what Jesus was referring to in John 17, verse 5. He said, well, backing up to verse 4, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you, listen, before the world was. Before the world was. Back in John chapter 1, when, when John is introducing Jesus Christ, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, verse 30, this is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. Now, guys, 
John the Baptist was the cousin of Jesus. Jesus was the cousin of John the Baptist. John was born first. John was six months older than Jesus. When John was born, six months later, Jesus Christ was born, right? They were cousins. So in his humanity, John was older than Jesus. But John says, look, this one that I told you was coming was preferred before me because he was before me. John's talking about the fact that Jesus Christ, in his humanity, yeah, John was older, but in his divinity, Jesus in his divinity was the eternal God. And is. And he has always existed. Turn back to John chapter 1. I'll just touch on this. You can go back and listen to the uh, teachings from when we first started John's Gospel. We really went into this in detail. I'll just quickly give you a, a, a synopsis. Verse 1, John 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. Now, guys, when John says in the beginning was the word was, right? He uses the imperfect of the Greek word emi, which expresses the idea of, listen, continuous, timeless existence. Continuous, timeless existence. This is in contrast to the word for was that John used twice in verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In verse 3, the word John uses for was is the Greek word agenita. Agenita, and means to come into existence or to begin to be. John wants us to be clear that the Word, which is a title for Jesus Christ, again, Revelation 19 makes that very clear. John wants us to be clear that the Word, Jesus Christ, brought forth the, brought forth the physical creation. It, the physical universe, had a beginning. I, I, I bring that out, not just because John does, but we used to have scientists who believed the universe was eternal. And then when they built bigger telescopes to look into the universe, they realized stars were dying. And so if, if, they, had, if they had an end, uh, they had to have a beginning. So now they changed that. But um, John wants us to know that the physical universe created by Jesus Christ, the Word, had a beginning. But the one who created all things, the Lord Jesus Christ, already existed before everything in the physical realm was created. Why is this such an important point for John to communicate to us? Because it's important because John is presenting the divinity of Christ. Now, God had to die for man to redeem us. John's whole theme is eternal life through Christ, right? Eternal life is the life of God. And so if he's going to present, you know, does he say that at the end of his gospel, many other things Jesus did, uh, you know, but I don't have room to, to list all of them, but I've chosen these that you may, by reading, you may uh, believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Life, life, life. Fifty-four times in John's gospel, John talks about only the life that Jesus could give because it's the life of God. Well if, well, if Jesus gives the life of God, he has to be God. This is why John started off his uh, gospel by, by giving us an 18-verse prologue, a little mini lesson in Christology. 
to teach us what Christ he was talking about. Many Christs, many people running around claiming to be Christ, more are coming. The only Christ that can save, the only Christ that can impart the life of God is Jesus the Christ, right? John wants us to understand that. And so he has to prove that Jesus Christ is God. How does he do that in the first few verses of his gospel? By first of all, talking about the preexistence of Christ to the creation of the, of the material universe. Or in other words, the eternality of Christ. The eternality of Christ. That Jesus Christ is eternal. He had no beginning. We'll have no end, of course, but it had no beginning. Of course, this is consistent with other verses in the Bible. And I'll just give you a couple. Mal and Micah chapter 5, verse 2, talking about where Messiah would be born. But you, Bethlehem, in the county of Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. Messiah was going to be the everlasting God. You think the Jewish people would have known that from their scriptures? Psalm 90, verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Guys, this completely refutes, and we'll have to end with this, this, this completely refutes what is known as the Arian heresy. The Arian heresy. What is that? Well, there was a character by the name of Arius that, talk, that taught uh, in the beginning of the church's existence that Jesus was a created being. That he was a created being. That he was greater than a mere mortal man, but less than Almighty God. Now, this is the heresy that Jehovah's Witnesses have embraced. They believe that Jesus Christ is a mighty God, but lesser than Almighty Jehovah God. And so when you talk to a JW and they present that to you, you say, oh, I see you're polytheist. No, we're not polytheists. We have two gods. Oh, no, we don't. Is Jesus a false god? No, he's a mighty god, a true god. Well, they got two gods. You're polytheists, right? And they, they, they don't know what to do with that because they, they really haven't thought some of these things through. But John wanted us to be crystal clear on the Jesus that he had in mind, the only Jesus that could save us and give to us eternal life. And so he condensed, gave us a crash course on Christology, and in, in, in so doing, he first of all tells us that Jesus wasn't a created being. He was not a created being. He was the creator. Verse 3, all things were made by him, right? Without him, nothing was made that was made. If all things were made by Jesus Christ, then he himself could not have been made himself, right? I mean, it's very simple, isn't it? If he created all things and without him nothing was made that was made, then he himself couldn't have been made. He could not have been part of the creation. He's not a created being, and he has eternally existed because he's God. I mean, he isn't less than God. He's equal with, all, with Almighty God. You know why? Because he is Almighty Jehovah God. He's the second person of the Trinity, right? Now, my point in presenting all of this is so that everyone is clear that Jesus had to be God in human flesh to redeem those who were born into this fallen world as children of Adam. To complete the work Jesus came to the earth to finish, John 17, 4. 
Jesus Christ had to, he had to, to be God to die for our sins. Let me just end with this. Paul the Apostle says that when we are redeemed, when you accept Christ, you became a new what? Creation. That, that's the work of redemption. To make you a new creation. Here's the thing. People are in, in awe of the first creation, if they even believe in it. A lot of folks believe it just happened as a big bang, right? But we know that the Bible says that God, in the beginning, created, Genesis 1-1, the heavens and the earth, right? God created the physical universe. Depending on what scientists you talk to, the physical universe is anywhere from, I don't know, 10 to 20 billion light years across in diameter. I don't know how they get this, but this is what they say. A light year is the distance that light travels in the span of a year. Light travels at the rate of 186,000 miles per second. Let that soak in. 186,000 miles per second. Light will travel in a, in a tra traveling at that speed in the course of one full year will cover about six trillion miles. It's big, isn't it? And people look at the size of the universe and they are just awestruck at the power of God, and rightly so. Do you know that God only, he only really gave, I think it's like 31 verses in the book of Genesis, chapter 1, talking about the creation of the world, the first creation, physical creation. Do you know that you turn the page and the rest of the entire Bible deals with the work of the second creation, redeeming you and me? Do you know that the Bible says that the physical creation, it calls it the work of his fingers. Yeah, his fingers, right? Just finger work. Tink tinkering, okay? The physical creation was God's finger work, right? The work of your fingers, uh, Psalm 8. But when it talks about the work of redemption, which brings about the new creation in a person's life, the Bible says God had to bear his arms. He had to rope his sleeves. The psalmist said, no man can redeem his brother for the redemption of their souls is what? Costly. Way beyond anything we can give to redeem another human being. It would take God dying for the guilty. The innocent dying for the guilty. When you think about the work Jesus came to do. Uh, again, speaking the universe into existence, that's nothing for God. That's nothing. That didn't cost God anything. He just spoke and everything came into existence. But he couldn't just speak away sin, could he? That, that's the thing I want you to say. He could speak worlds into existence, stars. He could fill the universe with trillions of stars and planets. That was nothing. One word, boom, it's all there. But he couldn't speak sin out of existence. No, for that, he had to become one of us to die in our place. For God so loved the world that he what? Gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him would not perish in hell but have everlasting life.
When Jesus said, Father, I have finished the work you have given me to do. I hope we think about that a little bit. I hope we don't just, yeah, okay, yeah, cross, okay, move on. Because we're going to see when we finally see Jesus on that cross. There's a lot to learn from what he said and so on. But this work was a work that you and I could not have accomplished. Only God could save us from our sins. He didn't have to. We blew it. He could have went to the other side of the universe and started all over again. But he loved us so much, he was willing to die in our place to redeem us, that we might have a very deep, intimate relationship with God, where we called the Father Papa, because we have this very intimate, tender, loving relationship. I hope that you come away from this this morning understanding if anything should have set the record straight, because you have a lot of folks today who have grown up in abusive homes, terrible, abusive fathers, and they kind of think God the Father is like their earthly father. They have a warped concept of God, maybe based on something somebody did to them on the earth. But if anything should have made things right, where it set the record straight, it would be Jesus, God, dying on the cross for our sins. Vengeful, wrathful, angry, mean God? No, I don't think so. Loving, kind, merciful, gracious? That's the concept we have to have. That's the work Jesus came to fulfill, that you and I could have eternal life and live someday with him forever so next week god willing we will pick it up and uh, pick up uh starting with verse six and as jesus now in his prayer moves into praying for his disciples there's a lot of practical things that we're going to be able to glean from the first five verses a lot of theology it dealt with eternal life and so we needed to look at these things but we will look at, going forward, some very practical things that Jesus prayed for us uh, to his Father that we would uh, have, and we'll look at those starting next time. Father, thank you, Lord, for your great love wherewith you loved us. We praise you, Lord, and thank you that we were definitely not worthy uh, of the least of your mercies, let alone Jesus dying for us that we could have eternal life. We thank you, Lord that you loved us so much that you were willing to come down and die in our place. We thank you, Lord. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.